Matthew 6.10. We'll begin reading from Matthew 6.5 through verse 15. This also is God's word. When you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. Truly I say to you, they have their reward in full. But you, when you pray, go into your inner room, close your door, and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And when you are praying, do not use meaningless repetition as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard for their many words. So do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. Pray then in this way, our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. For if you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will will not forgive your transgressions. Then we go to our God in prayer and ask for his blessings on the reading and also the preaching of his holy word. Almighty God, we thank you, Father, for your generous provision for us, that you have sent us your Son, that our Lord Jesus is the one who gives us instruction on how to pray. We pray, Father, that you might transform our hearts. Father, we thank you for you've sent your Son, that he might be the perfect sacrifice, that he is the one who comes to take away sins of the world. Father, we pray that we might worship him. We pray, Father, that we might um, desire uh, what it is that he desires. And Father, we pray that you would continually transform our hearts, that we would be submissive to your will, that we would love your word, that we would hide it in our hearts. And Father, we pray and thanks that uh, submission to your will indeed is true freedom. This the world does not know. And Father, we pray that if any are here who do not know Jesus Christ, we pray, Father, that the good news of the gospel would be clear, that your Holy Spirit would use it, and that uh, sinners would embrace this good news for eternal life. We pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted, and that your servant would be humbled. We thank you in Christ's name. Amen. When you think about leaders, remember reading... Back in high school, uh, John D. Rockefeller was um, America's first billionaire when a billionaire meant something. And as a leader, as the head of his company, uh, he, he oversaw all the details of what went on in his company. And he was looking at uh, this, this gentleman who was sealing these barrels. So he was using some kind of metal uh, and, and it needed a certain number of droplets of this sealant, and it, I think it was like uh, 41 droplets. So he, so he asked the guy, uh, how, many, how many drops do you use? He's 41. He said, well, why is it 41? And he said, I don't know. That's what we've always done. And he says, how do you know that 37 won't do it correctly? And he said, okay, we can try. So because the CEO showed up and said, you're using too many droplets, droplets I'm paying for, so he tried 37. 
and a few of them failed. And then he tried 39 on, on John's recommendation, and 39 worked entirely fine. And from that point on, it wasn't 41, it was 39. He saved two droplets per, per barrel. And you think about how, this is how leaders are from the top down, right? Some people are despots. Some people are just very detailed. And they want things done a particular way. Now, when you think about our God, so many things come to mind. Think about how all things happen according to his will, according to his secret will, according to his sovereign will. But how often do we say that all things happen according to his revealed will? And all of us would be able to acknowledge, no, so many things happen contrary to his revealed will. So then we might ask, well, what kind of leader is him? Is, is God? Why does he allow these things to happen? And, uh, and what about his patience? What about his long-suffering nature? You think about God, that he is one who does all things well. And that he has patience that none of us have. That he desires that men would come to repentance. And that when men do not, they never have the excuse. I wasn't given enough opportunity and I wasn't given enough time. So even as we see in this passage here, the Sermon on the Mount, in which Jesus is giving his opinion about the law and its proper interpretation, when Jesus, who is the lawgiver, gives his, gives his opinion about the law, we all should listen, because his opinion is not a merely opinion, it is fact, it is truth. And in this particular passage, in Matthew chapter 6, he addresses the matter regarding prayer. And it's true during his time with his people, the Jews. It's true today, and it's true at every time, how easy it is for prayer to become monotonous, for prayer to lose its meaning. Even as uh, we cover this third petition, your will be done, it has implications on your life and mine. That when we repeat this, when we pray this, it shouldn't merely, and da-da-da-da-da, that this is something that we're asking of God, and it requires our humble submission. That when we pray it, there should be a willingness to follow it. So here, we see in this passage... Matthew chapter 6, verse 10, the Lord's Prayer's third petition, please for God's grace, for joyful submission to his revealed will for you and others. Lord's Prayer's third petition, please for God's grace, for joyful submission to his revealed will for you and others. We'll look at this in two points. The first is the matter of doing God's will, and the second, the manner of doing God's will. Even as we've been looking at the Lord's Prayer, you see that it begins with a, a preface and six petitions. And these six petitions are of significance because you could think about all the various things on which we are called to pray. And all of those things can be summarized within those six petitions. So that Jesus was not putting a limit, he was explaining categories. And you think about such things as, I need my car to start so I can get to work and feed my family. Well, what petition does that fit under? It's under our daily bread. This is our, our everyday needs, our, 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 our basic needs, that that petition covers all those things. We think also about your will be done. 
It addresses the matter that you and others, that we would be submissive to God's revealed will. So the matter of doing God's will. The will of God, what is it referring to? So there's three ways that the will of God is, uh, is mentioned. Uh, the first is God's general will or desire, what is pleasing to God. You think to uh, Jonah chapter 1, that uh, Jonah fleeing from God, he hops on a ship and goes the wrong way. And after a while, <clears throat> the, the storm comes. And uh, Jonah knows entirely why the storm is there. And he tells the sailors, who are all calling upon their gods, their little little g-gods, <coughs> for deliverance. And, and Jonah has to explain to him, no, no, you don't understand. that. I worship uh, the gods of the heavens and the earth. He made the sea and all that is in them. And, and, and then they're, they're afraid because here's Jonah telling him about the god who is not just the god of this small sphere. And he tells them how to fix the problem. You just got to throw me into the ocean because I've, I've disobeyed and I must be punished. And this is the right thing. Throw me, throw me into the sea, rather, Mediterranean Sea. And they're hesitant at first. They said, no, 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 no. That, that, that would result in your death, your certain death. And we, we will try to row. And then they realize, no, the ship is going to break apart. And after they throw him into the sea, as, as he suggested, there's guilt on them, and they say to God, but you have done as you have pleased. So don't hold this man's life against us, but you have done as you have pleased. We have the second, second reference to God's will, meaning his secret will, his sovereign plan. That often people desire to, to know the secret will of God. Hey, uh, which house is it that I ought to buy? I've seen three, and, and they're all decent. Which neighborhood... Which streets, uh, which, uh, which floor plan, or, or what ought to be my, my occupation, right? This, well, what should I be doing with my life? Or, or, or even more common, who should I choose as a spouse? And, and perhaps these are valid questions, but if the secret will, if the sovereign will of God is your primary concern and your focus, then perhaps there is this preoccupation for wrong reasons, that all of this is really just a ploy to ignore true duty. So we ought not to be thinking about the secret will. What ought we to do, the secret will of God or the revealed will? Often people try to find out the secret will because they're ignoring the revealed will. Think about the life of King Saul, that his life got so bad that he eventually sought a medium, a someone who is in contact with uh, evil spirits so that he might know the will of God. And this was considered an abomination. Consider Deuteronomy chapter 29, 29. It explains it so clearly to us. Secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things revealed belong to us and to our sons forever that we may observe all the words of this law. This is the instruction to us. We ought not to think about all those secret things. We ought not to think about all those details. We should be first concerned. Are we obeying the revealed will of God? Are we following His commandments? Are we faithful to the Lord? That is first and foremost. We trust Him with the details, the secret things. And it's not only to us. It's to our children. These revealed things belong to us and to our sons forever. 
So it's not merely to us, but we should desire that our children would honor and obey this revealed will of God. So that's the third reference to the will. And uh, keep in mind that this prayer, this prayer, the third petition, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's referring to this revealed will. It's referring to the word of God, to his commandments. That the desire is that we, or you first and foremost, and those around you, that we would be those who submit to and honor the will of God, that we would obey it in our lives, and that we would desire that others around us would do the same. <clears throat> so this is what the third petition is praying, the revealed will of God. We first have to acknowledge that there's an unnaturalness. It's not natural for man to seek God's will. In Romans chapter 8, it speaks about uh, man's darkness, that uh, he is uh, unwilling to submit to God's law. In fact, he's unable to do so. That the, ma- that the mind controlled by the flesh cannot submit to God's law. So there's both an unwillingness that they refuse to do it, but then there's also an inability. And it's only God who, who changes the heart. That by his sovereign power, he changes the heart so that man can esteem the things. He opens man's eyes so that we might see the wonderful things in his word. That that which was foolishness to a a carnal man then becomes wisdom from God so that we might actually esteem that which is good. There's a danger in ignoring or rejecting God's will. That for man to say, you know what, I want nothing to do with those things. It's not merely, well, there's wisdom and there's foolishness. That there's far, far worse things for a man to, to acknowledge that God's will is not important and in fact is an abomination. See, part of the evil man, he calls evil good and good evil. That this is what eventually happens when they call light darkness and darkness light. There's an ignoring of God's will. That's dangerous. There's a rejecting, there's a despising of God's will. Despising of his commandments and his word. And this is very bad for man. That this is dangerous for man. The scriptures speak about how the way of the transgressor is hard. For someone to have their life snuffed out. Think for a moment about the fifth commandment that uh, Elder Wayne read earlier. It's mentioned again in the book of Ephesians, and it's reinterpreted that instead of live long in, uh, in the land that the Lord God is giving you, it was live long in the land, uh, live long on the earth. So the promise attached to obeying or honoring your parents is that you might live long on the earth. This is saying that those who despise their parents, those who reject their parents, uh, those who dishonor them, that this is a quick snuffing out of life. That if you don't do that, that it will have terrible consequences on your life. So also with all the other commandments. There's often a misunderstanding regarding the doing of God's will. The world has an understanding that if you are doing someone else's will, it means that you are subordinate. 
that uh, people who are inferior, people who are uh, uh, not the high and free, are those who, who have to submit to the will of another. So then if you talk about submitting or being subordinate, then what we're talking about is someone who is inferior, someone who is unhappy, uh, someone who is unfulfilled, and someone who is altogether unsatisfied. These teachings of the world come straight from the devil, because none of these things are true. That God had provided Adam and Eve true joy and a, a great place in the garden. It's when they disobey God that all the darkness, all the sadness, the grief, the misery that that entered and that their lives came to an abrupt end, that death, spiritual death, came upon them. Part of the problem is that the world does not know God. Because you have to ask, wait a minute, if I'm submitting to the will of another, whose will? Tell me about the person to whom I am submitting. Now, if that person is a tyrant, is wicked, is self-centered, an egomaniac, whatever it is, then the answer is yes, you're right. It would be bad to submit to that person's will. But when you understand the character of God, then you and I can say submitting to his will is a good and a gracious thing. The world does not understand authority and power and privilege. There is an understanding, a misunderstanding, that with authority comes the privilege of disobeying the laws that you put other people under. How often do we see this? We seem to see this all the time. People who are in power exercise the privilege of not obeying the law. I was talking to a, a uh, police commander recently, and uh, it was during the period of great unrest. And, um, you know, I asked him, so what do you make sense of all this? And he told me, he told me this, that he requires of his officers to do two things. He says, number one, as a police officer, you must, you must obey the law. And then after that, he says, you must enforce the law. And I thought about that, and I said, wow, how true that is for us as Christians. Right, that here he's describing that a police officer can't be enforcing the law if he thinks he's above the law. So that's why he said that's first and foremost. You must obey the law. You must be examples. You must follow the law. And then in that way, you can then enforce the law. And here I'm thinking about us as Christians. How often do we think about it that way? That we who love God should be those who follow God's will. That this is God's will that we might be sanctified. This is God's will that we might believe upon Jesus Christ and have eternal life and tell others about that. How are we going to expect others to follow God's will unless we are joyfully following that will first? So power doesn't mean that we're above the law. Power and authority begins with being a godly example. So this whole misunderstanding, being under the will of another, proves that you're subordinate, you're inferior. None of these things are true. This is not God's way. We know that because we look at the life of Jesus Christ. What did he come to do? 
How did he come to live? He didn't come saying, hey, you know what? I'm, I'm the boss's son, and I can do whatever I want, and you guys have to do what I say. Oh, he lived everything out perfectly. John 8, 29. And he who sent me is with me. He has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. See, Jesus, he, he understood this principle. And he set an example for us that he is the one who is, that there's no higher authority than Jesus. That God has put all things under his feet. Yet here he says, he always does what is pleasing to his father. Was his life worthless? His life was of infinite value. Was he inferior? Was he unfulfilled and unhappy? No, he was none of those things. He delighted to do his father's will. Even toward the end, Luke 22:42, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. So you want to talk about inferiority. There's nothing inferior about submitting to God's will. That God calls us to do that as his children that love him. What was Jesus doing there? Jesus was on the way to the cross. He was in the Garden of Gethsemane. Yet not my will, but yours be done. It was God's will that Jesus would be stricken. It was God's will that Jesus would die on the cross. Not because he deserved it. Because Jesus is sinless. Jesus is perfect. He's righteous. He died the very death that sinners deserve to die. He died so that he might bring many sons and daughters to glory. So that you and I would say, I will follow the will of that one. Because he died in my place. The life he lived, he lived for me. That he paid the price to set me free. And that true freedom is following him. True bondage is ignoring him. Denying him. Rejecting him. And that you and I would have a proper understanding of what freedom is. Freedom is walking according to God's will, submitting to his word, cherishing his truth. Bondage is rejecting all those things and bearing all the penalties of the law. Here, there needs to be a significant caveat. You notice here that the third petition was not, your will be known. On earth as it is in heaven. It's not your will be known. It's your will be done. Your will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. It's not merely knowing God's word. It is doing God's word. Well, someone may come in and say, wait a minute. You have to know God's will in order to do it. You're right. But it's never sufficient just to know it. In James chapter 1 verse 22 James identifies this. Hey, listen. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers who delude themselves. So people who are hearers of the word and they're, they're so satisfied. Wait, we're those who have the law. We're those who hear the law. We're those who debate the law. We're those who discuss the law. And James is saying, hey, hey, hey. no, no, no. I don't care how often you're, you're thinking about the law. I don't care how often you're talking about the law. He says, you need to be doers of the law. 
And if you're not, then there's significant trouble. The Christian is not one who knows God's will. Rather, he's the one who obeys God's will. He's the one who follows God's will. He's the one who lives God's will in his own life. And says, that which you command, I will do. It's delusion to think that God is pleased merely with knowledge. Thomas Watson said, A man who knows God's will is admired, but the man who obeys God's will, he is blessed of God. There's a big difference. To know God's will is to be admired by men, but to live out God's will is to be blessed of God. I hope you can see there's a big difference. Big difference. The Apostle Paul addresses this matter, mere knowing versus doing, in Romans chapter 2, when he's speaking to the Jews. So he begins, Romans chapter 1, he's saying, uh, the darkness of man is evident. He says, when you look at the Gentiles, everything about them, everything that they do, it just speaks that they're darkened and they're understanding and they're in bondage. But then he addresses the Jews, and he addresses them in this particular way of you just know the law and you boast in it, but are you doing it? So Romans 2, 17 to 23. But if you bear the name Jew and rely upon the law and boast in God and know his will and approve the things that are essential being instructed out of the law and are confident that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, a corrector of the foolish, a teacher of the immature, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and of the truth, you therefore who teach another, do not teach yourself. You who preach that one should not steal, do you steal? You who say that one should not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, through your breaking the law, do you dishonor God? So here he's talking to Jews, but is, is it so simple to say that this is the same message that the Apostle Paul would have with people who are Christians? That we who have been given the, the great news of Jesus Christ and his teachings, are we those who dishonor God by how we live and what we say? That we ought to be those who love God's will and we ought to obey it in our lives. There's also the blessedness of following God's will. That blessed is the one who doesn't know. It's not that he knows God's will. It's that he does God's will. And we read earlier in Psalm 40, verse 4. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. That people will often say that... You are a fool because you live by the authority of one book. Well, don't you need to read a whole lot of books, like, you know, like all of these books, in order to have any kind of understanding and you've got to decide for yourself? Why, why, do you, why do you limit yourself to the authority of just one book? Well, as if that's the only book we read. But there is a way that this book is different than any other book. This book is inspired of God. This, is, this word is God-breathed. So there's no lack. The man who has God's word, that there's no lack that he has. That God has given us all that we need for life and godliness. This book is complete. 
that there are other books that may be useful or be of assistance to explain this book, but he who has this book, who has the word of God, he is perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So that if we say, well, we, we need the wisdom of the world to understand uh, the things that are present because God doesn't address the technology and the present. Well, God's truth spans all of time. And that life now doesn't change because somehow we, we, uh, we have the benefit of some particular electrons that can be used in particular ways. Life is still, the essential questions are still unchanged. And the truth that we ought to live by are still yet unchanged. It's essential to your, mature, your maturity and mine is to realize the deceptiveness of our own hearts, our own standards, our own desires. That our hearts change so easily. Our, our hearts uh, change on a whim. The ways of the world are constantly changing. You look at the standards of the world. The, the values of a particular culture are constantly changing. You, all you have to do is, uh, is look at uh, some of these <clears throat> movie stars. okay, And you look at some of them that uh, they played a character from 10, 15, 40 years ago that said something. And they said, hey, in that movie, you, you, you use this term, which is now a derogatory term. And it's, oh, hey, I'm totally sorry. That was, that was wrong. I shouldn't have said that. As if, it, as if he had any belief in those things. He's, he's repeating a line. But you see how these things are constantly changing. Our culture is constantly changing. There's... There's like a flux, right? The, the culture is constantly changing. So we, but what is good today won't be good tomorrow because people are changing. Standards are changing. But our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is unchanging. And His standard is perfect. And this is why you and I need His will expressed in God's Word. That His Word is a lamp to our feet and a light to our path. That without it, you and I are walking in darkness. And that we can say that we're not trusting in the falsehood. We're not trusting in the proud. We're trusting in our God. And he promises that he who trusts in God, who obeys his word, will be blessed. The other part of maturity is embracing God's way as your own. It's not waiting on God saying, eventually, God, you will give in and you will do what I want. No. Wisdom says, you know what? God's not changing and he's going to outlive us. We're going to die. We will answer to him. Wisdom is realizing when our will submits to his, not the other way around. In James chapter 1, verse 25. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become a forgetful hearer, but an effectual doer, this man will be blessed in what he does. And wisdom is realizing, Romans 2.12, what the will of God is. That is his good and acceptable and perfect will. When we start to realize, wow, that is wisdom. That is righteousness. That is the right way. I'm going to follow it. It is then 
that you will be blessed. No longer calling good evil and evil good. And you think about this prayer. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What does this mean to pray? Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. What good is it for you and I to pray that? To pray in that manner. But regarding our own lives, our own thoughts, our own words and actions, unless our lives are willing to be conformed to what God teaches us. So we might say, hey, we want this to happen, but change everything around me, just not me. Is this how we're praying? Are we saying, Lord, change me first? And the things around me will also change. More often than not, we're saying, what's wrong about the world is everything around me. Because I'm seeing your problem, and your problem, and your problem, and your problem. And wait a minute. I, I'm the problem. And we come to realize this prayer is primarily about you, primarily about me. That when you pray this, it's about the change that you need. When I pray this, it's about the change that I need. Regarding my will, my submission to God's will, my joyful submission to God's will. So when we pray this, may it not be a flippant and empty prayer. If you and I are going to pray this, you must pray this saying, Lord, what is wrong with my heart and my attitude and my values? And when we pray this, there must be a willingness for our hearts to change. There must be a willingness to submit to our Lord Jesus Christ. So this is the matter of doing God's will. We have also the manner of doing God's will. The manner of doing God's will. And that's summarized by the end part of verse 10, on earth as it is in heaven. So our catechism, larger catechism, explains it as as the angels do in heaven. And we had that verse in Psalm 103, verse 20, Bless the Lord, you his angels, mighty in strength, who perform his word, obeying, obeying the voice of his word. So that the angels are those who are sent, that they are ministering spirits. They minister to God's people. They minister to, to humans. That that's their job, that they're messengers of God. They minister to, uh, to God's people. That's according to what the Hebrews 1 or 2. And... They are those who serve God with joy every day. And that we ought to desire to obey God's will even as they do. Perhaps another way that we can put it is that for God's people on earth, there's still the battle, there's still the struggle against sin. Yet there will come a day when, when the mortal will put on immortality. When the corruptible will put on what is incorruptible. That you and I will be made new. That sin nature will be removed. That Jesus will wipe every tear away from our eyes. That we will sin no more. That's time in heaven. And that you and I ought to desire to obey on earth as we will be in heaven. As we look forward to that day when we will completely submit to God's will. Perfectly, that we ought to do that even now, today, in our lives. <clears throat> we think about some of these other things. The caveat earlier was, it's not just knowing God's will, 
It's doing God's will. But regarding this manner, the manner of doing God's will, it's not just doing God's will, it's how you do God's will. So doing it with joy. Doing with joy in our hearts. We read earlier in Psalm 40, verse 8. I delight to do your will, O my God. Your law is within my heart. There ought to be a joyful submission to God's will. It's not just, hey, I need to do it because I'm required to do it. It's my duty to do it, but I don't have to like it. That might be true about your job. And you realize your day doesn't go by any faster if you, if you grit your teeth. Okay? You've got to loosen the muscles in the jaw. Your day will go by faster. You've got to change the hardness of your heart. right? Uh, here, I delight to do your will. So we have to like it. Submitting to God's will, there ought to be joy in it. That without it, that we're not really doing his will, are we? That doing his will ought to be without hesitation. That hesitation comes when we consider the consequences. Well, how many friends am I going to lose? How much security, how much wealth am I going to lose if I do that? That's hesitation. Without complaint. That, okay, we're going to do this, but, God, these are all the things that I disagree with you on. Now, when you start doing that, we're not really talking about joyful submission anymore, are we? It can't be with complaint. It must be without complaint. It must be continual. That our obedience, our honor of God, our submission to his will must be continual. That uh, obedience in the Christian life is not a matter of a sprint. That you sprint for this you know, 10 or 11 seconds, 100, 100 meters, if you're really fast. Uh, it's a long-distance race. That the Christian life is a long-distance race. We have to think about the long haul. Did you start well? Did you start well in the Lord Jesus Christ? then I would say, start well and continue well. Finish well to the end. Follow the Lord Jesus Christ and be faithful to Him. Part of the manner of doing God's will is understanding God's ways of sanctification. In 1 Thessalonians 4, the Apostle Paul writes, This is God's will for you. Your sanctification. God's desire is that we would be sanctified. And God's desire is that we would learn to treasure his word and to submit to it. But you realize that God also understands that, uh, that we, we don't get his word by osmosis. So if you're getting ready for bed, you lay in bed... And you're lying in bed, face up, and you have this Bible. And then eventually your arms get tired when you fall asleep and the book drops and hits you in the face. Has that ever happened to any one of you? It's happened maybe several times, right? So uh, you could do this many times and the word is not going to get in, right? That's, that's not how the word enters the heart. It's not by some gravity or osmosis that it enters your life. It enters your heart through an arduous process. God uses affliction to teach you his word. 
to humble you so that you might submit to his will. Consider the words from Psalm 119, verse 67. Before I was afflicted, I went astray, but now I keep your word. This is likened to the way that perhaps this would be considered uh, animal cruelty, but the old adage was in order to teach a donkey something, you got to get the donkey's attention. And then, well, how do you do that? Well, you, you put this nail through this two by four and you bop the donkey on the head. You got his attention. Now he's, now, okay, now, now what do you want to say? And in many ways, this is the way that our lives, this is, this is your life and mine. We tend not to be focused. We tend not to be listening, right? So we're hearing words. What was that? That was just background noise. Well, that was God speaking. God often speaks in a quiet voice. It's not the roaring of uh, the thunder and the lightning. It's that still, small voice. And you and I have to understand that it's often through affliction that people learn to value God's Word. That's, it's through that affliction that God that meets people. Well, where, where, how did you come to know the Lord? It's only, it's only when you went through that deep and painful dark valley that the Lord Jesus Christ met you and saved you. Psalm 119, verse 71. It is good for me that I was afflicted, that I may learn your statutes. This is the manner in which we do God's will. We go through the path of affliction. So when it happens, when it happens, we shouldn't be complaining. We should be asking, Lord, what is it that you want to teach me? We ought to be saying, just as was it that Eli commanded Samuel, oh, if you hear that voice again, say, speak. Your servant is listening. We ought to say, Lord, speak. You speak through your word. What is it you want to teach me? Instead of being quick to express our opinions, I think about how often it is that we ought to be listening. I think our elder Wayne sets a good, good example of that. He's much better than me in listening rather than talking. So we ought to listen. And that if we're in God's presence, should we be talking or should we be listening? I think we should be listening to our God. And that he teaches us, especially when we go through that valley of affliction. Because then we stop talking and we start listening to them. We also have a proper view of second causes. What are second causes? God is the first cause. All things happen according to Him. But He uses secondary causes. He uses people. He uses weather. He uses events. Various things. And that you and I have to have a right view of second causes. It's easy for people in your life to see them as obstacles. But what is that fool doing? What is that fool doing? He's just disagreeing with me. Well, why is he disagreeing with me? Well, he has a different view than me. Well, maybe I should stop calling him a fool. Maybe I should try to listen to him. Think about the life of Ahab, King Ahab. And Jezebel. Ahab was looking over at Naboth. He liked his vineyard. I like your vineyard. I'm glad they pay you for it. Oh no, 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 I, I cannot, cannot sell it. 
And then here Ahab was at that fool. I offered him good money. I'm the king. That should be mine. Well, the view of second causes. Jezebel steps in. Hey, what are you sad about? Well, here's this guy Naboth. He won't sell me the vineyard. Oh, I'll take care of that for you. And you look at second causes. You realize that we view God as having used, having used second causes and uses second causes all the time. We say, hey, this is not something that we ought to have. We can get another vineyard someplace else. But no, Jezebel had to do all this deception, wrote these letters, and made these false accusations, and, and then this man Naboth was executed. You see, there's no, no respect for second causes. That when you and I start to look at people in our lives as barriers... I want this, and he's standing or she's standing in my way to this thing. Then eventually something that happens is like what happened to Naboth. That person gets killed. Or perhaps not as extreme, he gets slandered. He gets... They go around him, they dispose of him. Rather, second causes, maybe a better view, is the way that David viewed Shimei. Think about the... The latter half of David's life, summarized in 2 Samuel chapter 16. David had the shame, the shame of having to flee his own palace, his own home in Jerusalem. He had to flee. And then there, looking at him and David's loyal men, was this wicked man Shimei. He was of the household of Saul. And Think about all the pent-up anger that this man had. He, he would have had it good. If Saul was king, that Shimei would have been in political power. He would have political might. Get out, get out, you man of bloodshed. He was shouting, throwing dirt clods at David. And one of David's men, not remembering his name now, one of the sons of Zeruiah, he says, hey David, last time I checked, severed heads don't talk. Let me go with my sword. One stroke, I'll take this man's head off. And he says, no, 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 we're not going to do that. Here David says, if he curses, and if the Lord has told him, curse David, then who shall say, why have you done so? And David said to Abishai and to all his servants, behold, my son who came out from me seeks my life. How much more now this Benjamin? Let him alone and let him curse, for the Lord has told him. Perhaps the Lord will look at my affliction and return good to me instead of his cursing this day. Here was David, who had a respect for God. He realizes God uses second causes. Hey, if this man Shimei is cursing me, could it be because God is using him? There's something I need to learn. Here David as king, in his dark moment, moment of humiliation, is still able to say, you know what, I'm not going to take out my anger against God on, on harming another man. That God is the one who orchestrates all these things. They have to have a proper view of second causes. The, the friend who doesn't want to go with you on that vacation, the spouse who says no to let's make these plans, can't get angry at people for those things. God works in those ways. So as we think through this prayer of uh, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, it's primarily thinking about what you and I ought to be doing, submitting to God's will, honoring his word, obeying it in our lives. Think also about the church, 
that our desire is that the church would be faithful to the Lord, that the church would be doing the will of God, and that we primarily should be saying, what is it that I ought to be doing? How should I be changing? Not those around us. That we go to our God together in prayer.